Hello, Strokebusters! Welcome back to another episode of our podcast dedicated to exploring the latest in stroke research, treatment, and stories of resilience. I'm your host, Amy Quinn, and today we have an incredible guest joining us, a true expert in the field. I'm thrilled to welcome Stuart Frazier, Assistant Professor in Pediatric Neurology and the Director of the Pediatric Stroke Program here at the Stroke Institute. Dr. Frazier joined students at the McGovern Medical School for Stroke Grand Rounds, and we asked him to stick around for a follow-up interview with our stroke fellow, Carlos De La Garza. Pediatric stroke is an area that often doesn't get the attention it deserves, so I'm excited for this episode to shed light on the advancements and opportunities for improving outcomes. It's insightful, refreshing, and a great listen for students and trainees who, for all the right reasons, get a little nervous when they hear anything relating to pediatrics. Dr. Frazier has some great advice for them, so let's dive right in. Okay. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Stuart Frazier, pediatric and vascular neurologist at UT Health Houston. Dr. Frazier, thank you for joining uh, joining us today and taking this opportunity to talk with us. Um, Thanks for I've having me. Absolutely. I've had the opportunity to work with you, and by work, I mean being coached through a pediatric stroke consult. Um, <laughs> Basically, um, as an adult neurologist and soon to be vascular neurologist, pediatric patients have always made me and, and most of my colleagues somewhat nervous. So, that being said, do kids have strokes? Um, <laughs> if, if, if I get a page in the middle of the night that says pediatric code stroke, what's the possibility of this being the real deal? How concerned should I be? Good, good question. So. Yeah, I will uh, re repeat my my baseline facts that I, I say forever, um, and it's that, yeah, kids do have strokes. Um, uh, believe it or not, it's the most common cause of uh, hemiparetic cerebral palsy. Uh, so about one in eleven 1 hundred children when they're born will have a stroke. And then it's maybe one for every uh, out of every 20,000 each year after that. Uh, you know, for the first 19, 20 years of your life. So yes, they have strokes. Uh, it's the ninth most common cause of death in pediatrics. Um, and it's an uncommon disease, but it's not technically rare. Uh, so it's it's something that uh, I think stroke neurologists, wherever they are, they do get asked about. Um, and knowing a, a few um, key facts can be helpful in your practice. And then that that feared pediatric code stroke page. What what is the chance that it is uh, that it ends up being a stroke? Um, it depends on where you are, but the take home number is usually about one in four. One in four pediatric stroke alerts in um, big hospitals end up being strokes. And uh, you know, of those, um, there's a pretty decent chance. Um, that it's a large artery occlusion, just like um, in adults when kids have an acute ischemic stroke, about one out of four ends up being a, an LVO. So in your experience, what's from from the point of view of the of the uh, emergency room or say a paramedic, yeah. what's the first symptom or what's the most common symptom that you've noticed um, that they should be concerned about? Awesome. Yeah, that's a good question, too. So um, and, and people ask uh, and I think uh, I think that 
what people worry about is is we I think pediatric providers will often say they're not just little adults and they present very differently. Um, and I tell people that though that's true, uh, if you're coming from the baseline of a neurologist, uh, it's okay to use that baseline and just keep a few modifications in mind when you're trying to think about uh, kids with stroke. So, um, hey, good question. Yeah. So, um, so what what is the most common symptom that someone might see, or an ED physician, or a paramedic, or a vascular neurologist? Uh, what I tell people generally is that. Um, though it can be harder to get that information out of a child um, than a previously healthy adult, uh, the presenting symptoms from stroke actually are, for the most part, fairly similar. Um, hemiparesis, sudden onset, unexplained altered mental status, uh, dysarthria, inability to walk. Kids can have all of those things, and hemiparesis is actually the most common cause for which a code stroke is called. Um, one of the big differences is that kids are more likely to have a seizure at stroke onset, um, or at least be coded as having a seizure or diagnosed as having a seizure at stroke onset than adults. And um, this can sometimes put them on the wrong diagnostic pathway. So I, I tell people that someone with a new seizure and a uh, Todd's paralysis afterwards, and they've never had a seizure before, that's enough of a reason to uh, put them on to prove to yourself that they're not having a stroke with advanced imaging um, as quickly as possible. Um, uh, if they recover while they're on the scanner, that's great. Uh, but a, a child with um, a new onset hemiparesis in the setting of a seizure has never had this before. Uh, that's something to to take very, very seriously. Um, the one other thing I'll say is that little, little kids, so neonates, infants under one years old or, or sometimes even two years old, can be very likely to present uh, with seizure and encephalopathy. And uh, those those can be difficult to diagnose, um, but generally uh, for ischemic stroke anyway, kids under a year, we don't put them in the intervention window in terms of thrombolysis and thrombectomy. Uh, it's been done before. Uh, it just is, I think, a much tougher sell than on a five or six year old. So is it fair to say that most of your patients who are within the neonatal period uh, will be um, inpatient consults and not necessarily somebody that's brought in uh, by parents or something? Yes, absolutely. So almost all of them are inpatient consults. The story is the um, child will be born. Um, oftentimes they'll have a rough birth from something, maybe a maternal infection or um, some heart rate changes near birth, and they'll appear a little bit floppy. And then a few hours later, we'll start having seizures. And usually that's what um, instigates them getting an MRI done and us diagnosing stroke. Understood. So one of the things that might help us out as a uh, or as adult uh, neurologist or vascular neurologist um, is if you can talk us through what your thought process is uh, once you get a call from one of your fellows, once you get a call from one of the uh, vascular neurology fellows, and or even if you get a page and it just says that dreaded or at least dreaded for us pediatric uh, code stroke. 
what's your thought process like? What are you looking for? What are we uh, supposed to be looking for? What are we supposed to be thinking about? Awesome, awesome question. So I um, use that um, adult stroke neurology or just stroke neurology training as as my baseline. And then I add a few caveats to things uh, to try to keep myself in, in the same sort of framework uh, that I can do the hopefully the best job possible. So if you get the first phone call, uh, the first question I I'm always trying to answer, which is the same in the adult stroke world is, is this patient a thrombolysis candidate and are they a thrombectomy candidate in terms of their initial presentation? So the first thing is, when do the symptoms start? Uh, how severe are the symptoms? And then the third, how old are they? Uh, because really under two years old, um, you, it's very difficult to, um, uh, push for something like a, a thrombectomy or thrombolysis. And actually in in the protocol we wrote for our uh, hospital, we don't consider it under two years of age. So um, if someone calls and says, hey, I have a code stroke, uh, they have uh, XYZ symptoms, the first thing I ask is how severe are they? Um, and NIHSS, if the person was able to do it or just if they are having trouble getting them to cooperate, I just say, what do you see? Are they moving their right arm at all? Um, no, it looks like a baseline. They're not. OK, when you pinch it, does anything happen? If the answer is still no, um, then you think, oh, that sounds pretty severe. Uh, and then after that, you the next question, if it seems like they are a intervention candidate or potentially an intervention candidate, is how do I figure out if they have um, something that's intervenable? Um, can I get them to the MRI scanner immediately? And that's based off uh, one is the ch would the child be able to sit still without anesthesia? Um, and a lot of times the answer is yes, if you keep reassuring them. And two, uh, if they're uh, do they have any contraindication to it, like a pacemaker or hardware or something like that? And if not, then we go, of course, to a CT and a CTA. And, and the big thing we're trying to rule out is large artery occlusion. Um, that that's the biggest, most intervenable problem a child could have and your biggest chance to make a big difference. So um, the big thing I'm trying to do when I get those calls is trying to rule out large artery occlusion. After that, um, uh, then we start thinking about those three sort of problems with stroke that we had talked about before. OK, we, we were or were not able to intervene. Um, now I'm trying to diagnose stroke, yes or no. Uh, and uh, with us, usually MRI is the way that we make that um, that distinction one way or the other. Uh, so so first is intervention and then uh, yes or no. And then uh, after that, uh, if we're not sure uh, if they're having a stroke, you're trying to find out ultimately, is this a stroke? Yes or no. And MRI is usually the way that you do it. Understood. And that's very helpful. Um, my next question might be uh, a little bit loaded, I guess. Uh, okay. But I, think, I love that. I, I, <laughs> fair enough. But I think it's something that will help uh, not only us as fellows, but residents as well. If I'm not mistaken, you were on service on the adult side uh, a couple of weeks back, uh, maybe a couple of months back. Yeah. Um, what have you noticed? in terms of how residents and how fellows uh, approach stroke from the adult side versus the PD, uh, the pediatric side. 
Oh, wow. Well, uh, uh, one would be with, I think they approach adult stroke with a lot more confidence. And that comes uh, with experience, I think. Ad adult stroke is hard. Uh, it, it is. There, there's a lot of considerations and you have to make big decisions um, uh, to the best of your ability, trying to save as much brain as you can, as I like to say, because it, it's it's someone's life. Um, and uh, we all want to prevent disability as much as possible. That is our goal. Uh, because in the adult world, you see it over and over and over and over again, I think people are a lot more confident. Um, what I tell people about PD stroke is it, it actually, I would say it's not harder. It's just you haven't had as much practice. And so um, that's where I tell people it's okay to lean back on what you know already and use that with a couple of adjustments and framework to try to help that child that you're being consulted on. Um, again, uh, going on those same pathway. Okay, is this person an intervention candidate in those two ways that I'm I'm concerned about, yes or no? And then what is my final diagnosis, um, vascular or not vascular? Uh, and uh, if, if you can do that as a stroke neurologist and not a, a, a child neurologist who has to figure it out if it's not a stroke, what to do, um, you, are, you are ahead of the game and, and you will be really helping out um, when you are called on to, to, to provide your input on these difficult cases. And, and I think that that um, that little phrase that you mentioned where um, we should lean back on our training, even though we're dealing with patients who we don't typically see. Yeah. And, and, and that being said, that uh, code stroke at 3 a.m. that ends up being a pediatric patient, I mean, people are half asleep or whatever, and you get there and you see a kid. I mean, you're you start to freak out a little bit. But at the end of the yeah. day, if you if you're able to lean back on onto the training you already have, I mean, you you could at least make the determination if the patient is a candidate for any kind of uh, intervention within window. Yeah, yeah, and I think it, as long as you set those reasonable expectations for yourself, you can. Uh, feel like you're you're doing the right thing. Uh, I um, when you run it, you know. I always joke. There's a reason they call it the nervous system, um, uh, because it makes people nervous. And and pediatric stroke Absolutely. is something. Pediatric stroke is something that makes people nervous. Um, but if you step back and remember, you know, all, all the things that you know, then it becomes easy to use your resources to try to figure out how to get the information you need to help that child so everyone else can do what they have to do too. Um, so if there's concern for hemiparesis or not talking the way they normally are supposed to, and you can't remember because you don't walk around with all these things in your mind, oh my gosh, uh, how, is a four-year-old supposed to be able to speak in fluent sentences? How much are they supposed to um, uh, say? How many words are they supposed to know? You, you have a secret cheat sheet that is always with you um, and it's okay to turn towards them. And that's the parents or the caregivers. Um, if if there's concern for language not being normal and you can't remember exactly what normal language is, you turn towards that mom or dad and uh, you say, mom, is he speaking less than normally or does this sound normal to you? And if they say his voice sounds funny, um, that counts as dysarthria. And if they say, no, he, he's not saying any words, that counts as aphasia. 
and you can do simple things and you may be wrong and they were just crying and didn't want to talk to you. Um, but it, it's OK to raise the alarm so that you proceed to the advanced imaging that you need. Absolutely, and, and that's even more helpful um, just in the assessment because I mean, in the adult world, we'll turn around and ask the family, oh, do they sound normal or something yeah. to that yeah. extent? But yeah. it's probably not something we had thought about um, within like language development and all that. Um, yeah. And, and then um, changing the subject matter a little bit, uh, you mentioned seizures as a, a differential diagnosis in, in patients. But what mimics should we be aware about? Um, what what role do patients who come in with a history of sickle cell disease or some kind of mitochondrial pathology? Um, yeah. What what uh, advice can you give us from that perspective? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, um, uh, on and and you actually kind of delved into risk factors in a in a way that I really like. So. Um, I'll start with this. I'll talk about the the big important mimics. Um, uh, seizure is one, and it, at our hospital, about a quarter of our code strokes end up being seizure, and uh, that's fine. Uh, you know, you get a stat MRI uh, for your seizure, no big deal. Um, there's no harm. We're okay with that. Uh, and as a stroke neurologist, once you've ruled out stroke, you can back off and say, hey, this looks like seizure. I will defer to pediatric on dosing and medicine and what he needs next, and, and that's it. Um, other uh, uh, mimics include complicated migraine, which I think in teenagers, uh, adult neurologists are pretty good at diagnosing in my experience. Um, and uh, of course, at the bottom of your differential, but we do see it fairly often would be things like conversion disorder or uh, functional neurologic disorders. Of the serious mimics, ones where um, uh, it, that this could potentially be a, a big problem if you treated them for stroke inappropriately uh, and when they weren't having one. We think about um, methotrexate toxicity. So for the residents, uh, this is an on your boards and will be in your life sort of thing. Uh, people that receive in, intrathecal methotrexate for their cancer treatment can present with focal neurologic symptoms, hemiparesis. And it's very, very important um, to get that history of medical problems from a code stroke patient, particularly history of cancer, if they just got cancer treatments through a, a spinal tap, because um, you don't want to give that person um, thrombolysis or because uh, uh, if they just got a spinal tap. Um, other serious mimics are encephalitis. I've seen encephalitis uh, present acutely, but probably the problems was going on for a couple of days. Um, and the myelinating disorders, um, same thing can present with sudden onset altered mental status or something like that. And a CT usually won't be good at, at helping you diagnose those things. Well, that's that's very helpful, actually. Um, something we should really, really consider. Um, and and uh, jumping off to the interventions, what's your opinion um, on uh, TNK specifically for uh, pediatric patients, there's this big push and all the big centers are now doing TNK for the adult side. But how about in the in the PD side? Uh, do you like TNK or do you prefer just uh, doing all to place? What's your uh, what's your thought about those medications? Awesome question. So um, TPA, if TPA specifically, if properly administered to children um, who have acute ischemic stroke and no contraindications 
um, is probably as safe as in young adults in the same situation. Um, and we're getting that uh, from the tipsters paper that was published several years ago. Um, uh, that comes with the caveat that uh, there's a lot of unpublished cases out there of thrombolysis being done in pediatric patients uh, where it might have been outside the window or they had a contraindication like active malignancy or something like that. And they did have bleeding complications and people don't like to publish those things. Um, so uh, I think that TPA probably has a record of being safe in kids provided you do it correctly. Um, and what I define as correct is uh, the definitions they used in the TIPS trial in the uh, uh, the 20-teens um, that we had talked about in Grand Rounds. TNK, we have, in terms of safety data, um, a recent case report out of Wash U, um, some text messages I have received over the past year or two uh, from anxious um, adult stroke friends uh, that I've made over the years who um, uh, asked my opinion uh, and we talked on the phone. Um, and uh, we'll have a debate on it soon at, at ISC this coming year. I would believe that it is probably as safe as TPA in kids, again, if ministered correctly. The one thing about TPA as compared to TNK is if you're giving it to a kid and you realize your diagnosis is wrong 20 minutes into administration, you can stop it and probably lower their risk. And in TNK, you can't. Um, and uh, I talk a lot about diagnostic errors in, in pediatric stroke. So that that's the one thing that makes me a little nervous. We at Children's Memorial Herman have not switched over to TNK as opposed to TPA in kids, um, largely because I have dragged my feet on it because I'm nervous about that switch and I'm waiting for more safety data from other centers first. So that's that's my opinion. Um, I don't have any reason to think it's not particularly unsafe in children, except for that if a diagnostic error is made, um, you have less of a, a fallback to reverse your mistake with TNK than you do with TPA. And, and I think that's a very interesting point you bring up, um, the administration side where uh, Altaplace can just be, or is usually a push followed by an infusion, whereas right. TNK is uh, just a push. What, how, how do you approach uh, a hemorrhagic conversion? Say it's, um, it's a small hemorrhagic conversion. Do we need to do anything? Do we just watch it like in the adult side? Or if it's a meaningful hemorrhagic conversion, do you do the same uh, protocol we use on the adult side to reverse uh, yeah. the medication? That's a good question. So thankfully, um, I've yet to have a hemorrhagic conversion in a, in a kid with thrombolysis. Um, uh, I hope it stays that way. We, we don't do it very often. Um, if I was in that situation, I would just follow what I would do on the adult side. Um, kids are actually probably the tiniest bit clottier um, that, than some adults or some people think they might be. Uh, so um, uh, that's why I'd say oh, you can just um, uh, leave it alone and we do the same things we do with adults. But as of yet, cross my heart and hope to die. Uh, we not haven't had that complication in a in a child. And I hope we never do. Yeah, same. I hope it never does happen. But, you know, yeah. 
prepare for the worst, hope for the best. Right. So, right, um, right. And then a couple more questions before um, before we're done. Um, what's what's your opinion on endovascular uh, approaches to uh, pediatric stroke? Awesome. Uh, any any specific uh, post uh, endovascular care tips that you can uh, give us, or anything that you would like for us to know? Awesome, awesome question. So. Man, what a great question. So, uh, in terms of taking them for uh, to for endovascular for hopefully a thrombectomy, uh, what I tell people is, if you would do it in an adult, um, based on their imaging profile, and you have um, the anesthesia and ICU support um, uh, to uh, care for them during the procedure you should do it in a kid um, uh, as long as your interventionalist feels feels comfortable. There's a couple considerations for pediatric thrombectomy uh, that you have to think about. So one is um, the the best intervention candidates we've run into have all been cardioembolic candidates, and I think that's similar experience at other places. Um, so congenital heart disease patients uh, are, are are often good candidates if you can recognize it fast enough. Uh, and we've had cases where I've, I've been very happy um, with, with how the children have done. Um, but you do have to, your interventionalist is gonna have to call the surgeon uh, before they take them. And the <laughs> pediatric heart surgeons are always willing to talk to you. You don't have to worry about them uh, uh, wanting to save that kid's brain. Uh, they will want to, uh, I promise. Uh, just to make sure you understand their anatomy before you go in, because typically they won't have a normal um, uh, aortic uh, uh, system, or it may have been reconstructed, or they may have a heart with just one ventricle, and that's important to know. So those are great candidates. That's, that's actually a good a, a good point you make because that's not something I had thought about reaching out yes. to the uh, CV surgeons or the CT surgeons yes, just to yes, make so sure you get their opinion. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really important to call the CT surgeon for these congenital heart disease cases. Now, we've had had someone transferred to us where the endovascular person was taking a teenager who only had one ventricle um, at an outside institution. He couldn't reach the CV surgeon in time, and and he just went for it and probably saved her life. And um, because of how so, you know, so we know what bad outcomes will come from like a proximal left MCA occlusion or a basal artery occlusion. And so for those, sometimes you, you just have to go for it. But if you can try to reach her cardiologist or CV surgeon or whoever. That's, so that's, that's one actually, consideration. You make a great point. And it's, it's something that's well noted and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take it to heart, to be honest. Yes, <laughs> um, thank you. Piggybacking off uh, Dr. Grada and Dr. Zapp a little bit, do you think there's going to be a role for MSU, the mobile stroke unit at some point uh, in pediatric stroke? That is a great question. Um, they have, uh, of course, it has um, popped up over coffee talks with both of them. And I think that uh, pediatric stroke is, uh, uh, like I said, it's not a rare disease, um, but it is an uncommon disease. And um, I think there is a role for specialized pediatric transport units. There might even one day be a role for specialized pediatric neurocritical care-esque transport units. But um, 
the uh, diagnostic dilemma and the amount of information you need about someone uh, with pediatric stroke prior to thrombolytic administration probably and the infrequency with which it happens probably means that in the future, I think it would be difficult, and I'll just go go ahead and hopefully, if I get proved wrong, that's great. But I think would be unlikely. Um, uh, we'd be unlikely to ever have a pediatric mobile stroke unit. Understood, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, and a couple more questions, I promise, before we have you um, go about your day. Okay. But, uh, any any specific case that you remember that has just been with you throughout your career that illustrates the possibilities of stroke care in kids or any case that you would like to let us know about? Oh gosh. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we talked a lot about what to do with that acute care stuff and um, uh, that for children with, with heart disease, you have to call the surgeons. And uh, of course, you have to be careful with suspected arteriopathies and endovascular care in kids because of it might be inflammatory or moya moya. Um, you just have to be careful once the catheter goes up there. Uh, the um, I think that I, I usually, you know, when I got into this, <laughs> I, when I was a medical student, I really wanted to be a stroke neurologist. And uh, when I did my pediatrics rotation, I, I realized that I'm I'm happier working with kids. And I thought I, I couldn't be a stroke neurologist anymore, and that's okay. Um, but we we found a way to make it work. Um, initially, I was drawn to it because I I just liked the idea of having to make decisions fast to help people and um, all that, uh, you know. Uh, hotshot stuff that stroke neurologists have a stereotype for. Um, as as I set up clinic and started following these kids longitudinally, I think what got me is um, that even though they recover better than adults, um, quote unquote, uh, children with stroke have a lot of problems for the rest of their lives. And, and sometimes we refer to them as the walking wounded because they'll look pretty good, but there's mental issues that happen. There's issues with depression and mobility that um, can get in the way of, of what they want to do. And um, I, I'm motivated by just trying to find a way to help these kids live the, the best life that they can with the science that we have around. So I, I think recently, I won't name any names, I, but um, uh, we had set up this brief rehabilitation trial where we were trying to restore some arm function in, uh, in in kids and uh, this one girl uh, finished and um, uh, she had had a pretty big stroke and has some significant weakness. And she asked if we'd be able to do it again or if there's any more studies coming up. And I said, well, actually, yeah, we, um, we're we planning to move forward uh, starting next summer with more work and um, hopefully we'll find ways to help you and kids like you in the future. And I said that, and then she stuck her hands up. I, I mean, the right one as best as she could and went, yes! amazing and like high-fived her dad and um <laughs> i think being for them in the hospital is fantastic um in addition forming those relationships long term um where you can be with someone and, and help them to the best of your ability as they go on the rest of their life after their stroke can be really really meaningful and um i, I think that interaction which was a couple of weeks ago really stuck with me. And uh, that's the kind of thing that motivates me 
at least to um, keep going and keep trying to find ways to help them uh, in, in whatever way we can. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, it's definitely something that we, we should consider when seeing these patients, even though we more than likely won't be seeing them in clinic. I mean, it's something that we should uh, look forward to. And uh, finally, uh, what takeaway would you like for uh, our, our audience to have? If there's Last one thing takeaways. they could, if there's one thing they could take away from this, or if they fast forward all the way to the end, uh, what would you like for them to know? Okay, okay, all right, here we go. So, stroke neurologists, stroke trainees, um, all my uh, uh, adult neurology colleagues, um, here's what I, I'm going to tell you about uh, pediatric stroke. If if you had to take just one thing home, it's that it does happen. Um, if you get a consult for concern for that. Uh, treat it seriously, just like you do with your adult code strokes. Um, with and and you can fall back on that training with just a couple couple of different little caveats to change it. Which is um, one, the biggest thing you're trying to do is diagnose large artery occlusion or intracranial hemorrhage. And so, if you don't have access to an immediate MRI, you can do that with a CTA and a CT. And uh, if you find that they are not having those things, um, then uh, you uh, did what you needed to do and it, it, you can transfer them on to um, the nearest tertiary care children's center uh, as urgently as you can and feel confident that you were doing the right thing. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Um, I do want to say thank you so much for this because uh, I, even if I am still uh, nervous with taking care of uh, pediatric patients. I, I think I might have an idea of what to do now, at least in the acute setting. Um, and, and, and again, thank you for just helping us out and, and being a part of this. I also want to say thank you. Uh, uh, during my residency, Dr. Daniel uh, Davila over at TCH was also a great help. Um, and that's just, again, because pediatric patients make us so nervous, but both you and him and, and the stroke, uh, pediatric stroke specialist that I've, uh, I've known have been very, very helpful and have gotten through, um, have gone through us and, and helped us out a lot. Uh, yes, yeah. basically just thank you. Absolutely. And I'm sure Dr. Davila would appreciate that. I, I can't say uh, enough good things about um, uh, the work him and his colleagues do and, and, we're, we're always happy to collaborate with our, our friends at other institutions. So thank you for bringing that up. Wonderful and uh, happy holidays. Yeah, you as well. Thanks, Carlos. Thank you. And that's going to do it. We are wrapping up another enlightening episode of Stroke Busters. A massive thank you to our incredible guest, Dr. Stuart Frazier, for sharing your expertise and insights on pediatric stroke. Your work is truly inspiring. And a special shout out to our listeners. Thank you for tuning in. Your curiosity and engagement make this podcast possible. Before we go, a huge thanks to our host, Carlos De La Garza, for guiding today's conversation with thoughtful and insightful questions. Your dedication to bringing impactful discussions to our audience was truly commendable. And as always, ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and are not a substitute for expert medical advice. Always contact your doctor before starting any program or therapy to make sure you're getting the best care tailored to your unique situation. 
If you enjoyed today's episode and want to stay updated on all things Stroke Busters, be sure to follow us on social media. Follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and X at UT Health Stroke to stay updated on upcoming episodes and share with colleagues, friends, and family. For updates and the latest news on the Stroke Institute, research programs, events, and more, go online to uth.edu forward slash stroke hyphen institute. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hit that follow button. Never miss an episode. We have some exciting discussions lined up for you in 2024. So stay informed, stay curious, and stay engaged. Thank you for being part of the Stroke Busters community. Until next time, take care.